Well, my goal this morning for our time together in the few moments that we have is to uh, challenge, encourage, and uh, strengthen uh, fathers in our congregation. Stating that at the front, you may be saying, well, why am I here? I don't fall into that category. Well, what I have to say today extends not only to fathers, but really it behooves all of us to take these principles that will be applied this morning and to be able to see them come to fruition in your own life, that whatever realm of influence you may have, whoever you rub elbows with, that you likewise would be able to incorporate these things so it will help you to become the influence that God would have you to be in the lives of those where you have influence and that God has given you access So yes, I'm addressing men and fathers this morning, but nobody is exempt, all right? So nobody check out here this morning. Maybe you saw, as I did in the news this week, there was a tweet, actually, that was put out by the White House. It was there at the White House that they were celebrating what uh, many in our nation celebrate this month in regard to Pride Month. And what really struck me was the fact that they had a description there. They showed uh, the White House, and I think it was on the North Lawn there, and and they had an event there to kind of celebrate uh, this month and Pride Month. And there was a voiceover of the president and some of his remarks regarding what had taken place. Here's what that tweet said. It said, to the LGBTQ community, we have your back. And then it said this, these are our kids. They are our neighbors, not somebody else's kids. They're all our kids. And our children are the kite strings that hold our national ambitions aloft. It matters a great deal how we deal with them. I thought that was telling in that that is the perception of the leader of our nation. When it comes to the children of our nation, he says they don't belong to you, they belong to all of us. And there's actually a connection. He's saying they connect us to the next generation, but he's saying it's all of our responsibility to have that connection and pass along to them what we wish them to know. I was taken aback by that. Not that that's not the case, but that it was stated so bluntly. Do we understand today that there is a culture that is targeting our next generation? It's it's targeting our young people. And there's a deliberate attempt to inculcate them with the values of the culture that you see around us. This happens every day through advertising, if you're at all in tune to that. It happens through educational systems. It happens through public libraries. There's a direct attempt to pass on something to the next generation and actually have them push it even further. 
And statistics will tell you that that tactic is working. They're actually accomplishing that. Whenever I read about church management, church leadership, those kinds of things, I always come across this alarming statistic that they always give how young people after the age of 15 are leaving churches by the droves. They say as many as three in five will no longer attend a church service, even having been raised in a church. Because of that, churches are scrambling. Well, how do we prevent that? How do we gear our services more toward this younger generation? How do we somehow keep their interest, maintain their connection to this church? What must we do? Well, those are some good questions to ask, but I'm not certain that that is the essential place to begin when it comes to reaching the next generation. In fact, whenever God speaks of reaching the next generation, He always speaks in terms of what goes on not at church but in the home. He talks about what goes on not on Sunday but every other day during the week within the four walls of your house. The church can help, there's no doubt about that, but the church is designed simply to come alongside parents to help them in passing on the faith to the next generation. In fact, God has designed the family in a way that it is, it is so efficient at doing this. It is so efficient at passing along its values generationally that it's not a question of if you will pass anything on to your children. It's simply a matter of what. What will you pass along to them? Because it's going to happen. Because that's the way God has designed this core unit of our society. And so it's no wonder that when we open our Bibles to this fifth book of your Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, and you have Moses, now aged Moses, I almost picture Moses sitting, leaning on his staff at this point. He's lived a lot of life and a lot of history. And Moses has seen the damaging effects of a people who forget God and who don't trust him and who, who fail to really keep him first. And he's seen it play out in his own generation, in his own lifetime. And so as he leans on his staff in kind of a grandfatherly advice kind of way, he's looking out among the masses of people, and he's going to share his heart and say, you must be sure to pass on the fear of God. And that's clearly what his point is. If you look at the text with me in Deuteronomy 6, verse 1, Moses says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it. And notice verse 2. He says, Do these things for this reason, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. You see, Moses is thinking generationally. 
He's thinking, I'm passing off the scene, and so I want to give a charge to you that you would maintain a fear of God, you would serve God, but not only you, but your son, the next generation, and the grandchildren after that. So Moses is delivering this charge. His primary appeal is that they would fear the Lord and it would go on generationally. And I think if I were to ask, perhaps, to the man here this morning, certainly I think the men associated and members of Heritage Baptist Church that I said, would, would you concur with that? Would you say, yes, it would be my desire for me to fear the Lord and my children and my grandchildren? I think to the man, you would say yes. That's a desire. But the real question is how? Because all of us know and can even give example of people who have been raised in church and even people that attend church whenever the doors are open, and yet it never extended to their children or their grandchildren. And somehow they've lost the way. And it breeds heartache and pain. Don't misunderstand me this morning. I'm, I'm going to give you some keys to passing along the faith. But I'm not saying that if you simply do this, A always equals B. Because you can fear God and seek to pass on your faith and seek to do it, and yet you can have children that will turn away from the faith. I don't want to give you the notion that if your children have turned away the faith, you have done something wrong, although it would be good to examine yourself. My example of that is this. The Lord had two in the garden, Adam and Eve. He was their perfect father, and yet what did they do? Perfect environment, perfect setting, perfect communication. And yet in the freeness of their will, they turned from God. But it would be foolish for any father especially to say, well, I did everything I could. And yet they turned away. So men, let me encourage you, examine your heart today. This is what we desire. But let's truly seek in our own heart and ask ourselves if we truly are doing these things to help pass along a fear of God. This morning I want to preach to you simply on this. It's Father's Day and we're going to speak about this, passing it on. Passing on a fear of God. Very simple outline today. I'm a guy. I know how simple we like things. And so, very simple today, and I just kind of want to tickle this out for us from the text to see what it has to say. Here are three keys to passing on your faith, men. Number one, according to verse four, is this, keep God first. Look at verse four. Deuteronomy 6, 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What is Moses saying? What is God saying to us through Moses? Well, when you read this, you might assume that this is an affirmation of 
the oneness of God as opposed to His threeness. In Christian theology, we speak of the Trinity. It is mysterious, no doubt, but it's revealed to us in Scripture that God is three persons in one. And you might be tempted to read this verse and say, well, here God is just affirming this oneness. There's not three gods, there's only one God, and so it's just affirming His oneness. Here, Israel, we're not like the other nations around us that have many gods. God is one. But that's not actually the emphasis of the statement here. The statement is either emphasizing not God's oneness, but it's referring to God's exclusiveness. And here's what I mean by that. Look at chapter 7 of Deuteronomy and look at verse 9. You can see it put this way. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He's the faithful God. What's he saying there? Know that you have a bunch of other gods, but there are no gods. Your God is God. There's but one God. He's exclusive in that category. This is also spoken of in chapter 10. Look at chapter 10 and look at verse 17. It's put this way. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty, the awesome God. And you can see, again, he's emphasizing the fact of the exclusivity of God in this category that the Lord is unique as God, and therefore, since there is no other God but Him, He demands our exclusive allegiance. I would put it to you this way. What does it mean to keep God first? It means that God alone must be the supreme object of your worship. Then when it comes to allegiances and where those allegiances lie, God is first. He alone is to be worshipped. God himself makes this claim in Isaiah 45. I have it on the screen for you. He says, I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. God alone must be the supreme object of your worship. Why is that important when it comes to directing our children? Why is it important to keep God first? Well, God himself mentions this. If you'll go back to Deuteronomy chapter 5, In Deuteronomy 5, Moses, for the second time, is reiterating these Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. He's giving them to them again. And they're listed for us here at the beginning of chapter 5. And just notice with me in verse 7. Here's one of those commands. You shall have no other gods before me. Here again is this idea of the exclusivity of God in that category. And now look what he says down in verse 9. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why not? Because I, the Lord your God, am a what? Jealous God. Does that bother you? When we think in terms of jealousy, we think of it as negative. Someone is jealous about something. But do you know that there are things that you ought to be jealous about? Is it right 
for a husband to be jealous regarding his wife? He is jealous for her affections? Yes. Let me ask you, is it right for God to be jealous of his worship? Absolutely. Why? Because there is no other God. He alone is God. And therefore, when he says, I am jealous for my worship, it's not because there's lacking something in him that he needs, but it's the fact that it's right for you and actually best for you to worship and keep him first. And when that doesn't happen, there are consequences generationally. Look at the text. Deuteronomy 5, verse 9. You shall not bow down to these gods or serve them, because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I'm visiting, I'm jealous for my own worship. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Here's what God says. When somebody does not worship me, I'm jealous for my own worship, and they don't keep me first. God says, in essence, that divided kind of worship, or to put that somewhere else, what you're telling me is that you hate me. And he says, that affects the children. You say, well, that doesn't seem right. Are you saying that, that the parents sin and the children are punished for it? No, we know from other places in the scripture, particularly Ezekiel 18 and Jeremiah 31, that God says the soul that sins shall die, that everyone will be accountable for themselves. So how do we read this in Deuteronomy chapter 5? I think the best way to, to read this is this way, that if parents, if fathers, as it were, don't keep God first, it actually has an effect on the children they're raising. That sin of not keeping God first bears fruit in the lives of the next generation because they don't have the same sense that God deserves to be first because they've not seen it observed before them in daily activity. This is what Eugene Merrill, an excellent commentator on the book of Deuteronomy, says. He says this in regard to Deuteronomy 5, 9, and 10. He says, the repercussions of a divided worship are so great as to impact generations yet unborn if they continue to hate God. In other words, man, if you decide to worship something else in your life and in your home and you put something in the place of God, that's going to affect your kids. And it's going to affect your grandkids, perhaps. It's going to get you off-center and it's going to put them off-center. What you value and what you worship, Dad, will influence your family. Don't we know this? Our children are keen observers. They watch us carefully. And it doesn't take long for them to figure out what you're passionate about, what you really love. And when they're young, they're so impressionable in that way that they actually adopt those passions, even when everything else plays to the contrary. For example, I have two sons. 
And when my sons were very young, they used to wear Denver Bronco paraphernalia. And they did so living in New England. How does that happen? How do you overcome that cultural ethic? Especially when the Broncos are so bad and the Patriots were so good. Well, the home can overcome that to a degree. I better correct that because they're no longer Denver Bronco fans, okay? Their dad is, though. But our children are keen observers, especially in those early formative years, of what we're really excited about and what fuels our passions. And gentlemen, if, if we don't passionately keep God first in everything, your kids are going to know it. Do you want a humbling thing to do, dad or mom? Sit down with your kids and ask them, what do you think mom and dad loves most? What do you think I'm most passionate about? And then maybe brace yourself for the response. Because they're going to pick up on it. I find an interesting story in the Old Testament book of Genesis, the first book of our Bible. It's the story of Jacob, and Jacob has worked for a wife, for his uncle, as it were, Laban. You know the story, Laban's kind of a trickster, and Laban tricks Joseph into working 14 years for Rachel, the the woman that he loves. Eventually, Jacob realizes that Laban is just delaying the time with him because Laban's taking advantage of Jacob. And so finally Jacob says, that's it, I'm taking my wife and we're leaving. And he packs them up and he leaves Laban's house. And Laban arises and he says, Jacob's gone and he's taken Rachel with him, my daughter, and he chases him down. And when he chases him down, Laban gives this passion speech to Jacob about how he's been good to him. And one thing that Laban says to Jacob is this, why have you stolen my gods? And there were these little gods called teraphim in Hebrew, and and Laban had them in his household, and they would bow down and worship these things. And the fact is, is that Jacob didn't steal those gods. Do you know the story, though? Who did? His daughter, Rachel. And when she left the family, Laban, she took her gods with her. And men and ladies, when your children leave your home, they will take your gods with them. Will it be the God of self-fulfillment? Will it be the God of leisure? Will it be the God of sports? Will it be the God of money? Will it be the God of ministry? What you worship matters. If you want to pass on a fear of God, you must keep God first. Are your values leading your children in the wrong direction 
or is your own admiration of God leading them to fear him? Pass it on. Keep God first. Secondly, if you're going to pass it on, you must love God most. Look at what he says back in the text, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 4 is about our worship. The the Lord alone is God. Keep him first. Verse 5, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You say, well, that sounds a lot like the first to worship God. But here, love is given as something in addition to do. Keep God first and this God, you must love him. Well, how would you know if somebody actually loves God? How would your children know that you love God? Is it simply because you get up every day and you tell them, I love God? That might be part of it, but when you say that, what are they going to be looking for? Oftentimes when we hear the term loving God or loving someone, we think in terms primarily of affection or emotion. I have this warm feeling in my heart toward this person. However, we all know that talk is cheap, right? I can profess one thing and not live it out. And it's actually in this context that love here is not speaking of an emotion or a warm affection for God. It's actually speaking of a bedrock obedience to God obeying him even when it's very difficult. It's the bedrock commitment of covenant-keeping love. Your genuine love for God is expressed in obedience to God. Again, let me show you this in the context. He says, Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God. And he says this is kind of all-encompassing. But look at how he's spoken of love toward God. Look back at Deuteronomy chapter 5. And look again at verse 10. We read verse 9, and verse 10 says, But God will show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and do what? Who love me and, what does it say? Keep my commandments. And here's what God is equating. He's saying, I know you love me because you what? You keep my commandments. This is the proof. This is reiterated again. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10 and look at verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to what? To love him. And you can see in this context, he's not giving several different things. He's saying, here's what it is to fear God. It's to walk in his ways, to obey his commands. That's what it means to love him. And he's equating this idea of loving God. It's borne out in commitment by obeying God. This is true in chapter 11 in verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and what? Keep his charge. Again, these aren't two things he's saying Love the Lord your God. You show that by keeping his charge, doing what he has said. In language appropriate to covenant, obedience is construed as love. And don't we know this from what the Lord Jesus himself has taught us in John chapter 14 and verse 21, when Jesus says, 
if you love me, you'll keep what? My commandments. He says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one that loves me. And so how do we love God most? Well, we obey God supremely. In fact, this is an all-encompassing kind of love. If you'll go back to chapter 6 in Deuteronomy in verse 5, you're going to love the Lord, you're going to obey the Lord, and it encompasses this way, with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. With all your heart, that would be what you think. With all your soul, that's your vitality and life and all your might. That's your physical strength. In all ways of, of ways God has put you together, obey Him in all of those areas. Love him most. What is emphasized is a total allegiance to God, absolute commitment to him and his ways lived out in real concrete obedience. In other words, these people could possibly speak of verse 4, I'm keeping God first, but not live it out by disobeying God. And Moses is saying, whatever you do, don't make that disconnect. God is first, but I'm choosing not to obey him or love him most. We call that hypocrisy. We do our children a great disservice when we profess to worship God and be identified with the people of God, and yet we fail to walk in obedience to God in real ways. Spurgeon said it as only Spurgeon can. He said, a man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. In other words, I can say God is first, I can say I love God, but if I don't show it in what I do, it means nothing. Dads, we can profess to worship God and sit in a service even like this. We can say we've come to worship and we've opened our Bible and we've stood at the right time and sat at the right time and even sang the hymns and known those hymns from the time of a child. And yet we can demonstrate a disloyalty to God by going away from here and speaking harshly with our spouse, getting angry with our children, cheating on our taxes, slandering our coworkers. And all we're telling our children is, I don't really love God. Now, to be fair, some of you say, well, that's an impossible thing, Matt. I know I'm a dad, right? What you're talking about being perfect. I know none of us are perfect. But when we fail, when we sin, when we are harsh, and when we are unkind, what do you do then? Do you know what obedience to God looks like then? It looks like acknowledging my sin and confessing it to God and to others to whom I've sinned against. 
And that's obedience. That's saying, I love God most. Listen, Dad, if, if your children have never, ever heard you admit you're wrong and apologize, why would you ever expect to hear it from them? But by admitting you're wrong and apologizing, even when we sin, you know what we're teaching them? I love God most. I want to obey God even in this matter. Yes, I disobeyed, but to make it right, I confess and I forsake to find mercy. Will you forgive me? Young people are very insensitive to our inconsistencies. They can easily see a professed love in a disobedient life. So men, if you want to pass on your faith, love God most. Obey him in all things. Finally, we should keep God first, love God most, and now in verse 6, we should talk of God much. Look at verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. And he speaks of some other things. I find it interesting that when we think of passing on the faith and we think of, of forming the next generation, we want to start with this one, don't we? You know what this looks like? This looks like line upon line, precept upon precept. Let's get them down here. I'm going to sit them down. I'm going to open the Bible. I'm going to teach them all this knowledge. And I find it interesting that God says, don't start with that. You must keep God first, and you must love God most. Then you can talk of God much, and it's actually going to do the job. You see the pattern? We often think, well, it's, it's all about this, teaching them the Bible, bringing them to church so they can be taught. No, it, it starts with you keeping God first, loving God most, and then you can do this. But we should do this. What are we to do? Verse 6, it says that you shall treasure these things in your own heart. You yourself must know the word of God. Men, if, if you're not in God's word and you're not shepherding your own soul in God's word, how can you shepherd your wife or children? It's just not going to happen. And you can't outsource this. Well, that's why I bring them to church. And no, they're given to you, those children. And that's your responsibility. And so you must treasure God's word in your own heart that you're pursuing God and you're shepherding your own soul by those still waters of his word and spending time with him that out of the overflow of that, then you can speak into the lives of your children. You must treasure his word personally and then you must teach your children, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Teach your children diligently about God and his word and obeying him and keeping him first. And what does this look like? Well, when he says teach diligently, that actually looks like formal instruction. 
The picture of, is an, of engraving something. It's carving uh, through repeated strokes on something and carving it or etching it into stone, as it were. So it says, diligently teach them this way. It looks like formal instruction. Tonight, I would encourage you to come back. I'm going to take much of the service tonight and just talk about family devotions. What does that look like? How do I teach them diligently? What are some things that I can do to actually put this into practice and, and help engrave upon their character the truth of God and His Word? So because I don't have time this morning, we'll address that tonight. So it looks like times of formal instruction, but also this. Look at verse 7 again. Teach them diligently to your children. That's formal instruction. And you shall what? Talk about them. Now, that doesn't look so much like sitting down and formal instruction. That looks like talking about things when they come up. And notice he says, do this when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. It's talking about informal instruction. I have found the best time actually to speak to my children about the things of God are not necessarily in the family worship time, but it's when the questions come because we're spending time together. And there's a question about this and about that or maybe something that has been said or has been done. And it's in those informal times that we talk about God and what's his perception of this and what is his way about this thing. The next generation needs to be saturated with the ways and words of God to fear Him and, and bring to bear upon their life the truth of God's Word. They need reminder. They need reinforcement. As a parent and as a father, you should expect to have numerous conversations with your children about God and His ways and His world in which we live. And the same kinds of conversations repeatedly and often and never tire of speaking of those things time and time again when I lie down and when I rise up and when I walk here and there. Because I'm trying to saturate their world with the truth of God's Word to prepare them to fear Him for a time when I won't be around. And that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And we need to be consistent with this. And just by observation, what I tend to find is that parents and dads get so much into taking their kids to so many different things, to music and sports and drama and whatever else, that there's so much of that going on because they have to have all of those things, that's what everybody else is doing, that you're actually pushing out time to talk to them about God. Guard that time. It's going to take time. And be diligent with it. And so he says, verse 7, teach them diligently. Talk of them when you're in your house, when you're by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. He says, bind them as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. 
I think he's speaking metaphorically in verses 8 and 9. He's not talking literally. Some Jews take this literally, right? And you've seen the phylacteries or the little boxes that they'll wear on their foreheads or on their arms. Some take that very literally. I think actually Moses is speaking and God is speaking through him metaphorically. And he's saying this, if, if you're doing this, you're keeping God first, you're loving God most, you're, you're, you're talking about him much, it's going to come out in how you think like the Word of God is right here on your mind. And it's going to come out in what you do, like it's right here on your hand. And so what you think and what you do will be governed by this whole process that has been involved in passing on this truth. And it comes out in how you live. How do I know when I'm passing on the faith? Are your children thinking in biblical terms and are they making choices that demonstrate it in their life? We need to talk of God much. And then look at this. Look at verse 20 of Deuteronomy 6. Here's how else how we should talk of God much. Verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? See, here's a son. He's saying, well, what is all this, what's this all about? I mean, these statutes obeying God. Here's your answer, verse 21. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our what? Good always. That he might preserve us alive as we are this day. Here's another way you need to talk of God to your children much. Have you ever shared your testimony with your children? He says, when the kids ask you, why do we live this way? He says, you remind them that you were once a slave, but God delivered you and set you free. And in doing so, God called you to himself. How do you talk of God much? When the kids ask, what's this all about? You say, let me tell you, there was a time when I was a slave to sin. As the Bible says, I was born into this world dead in trespasses and sins. I was a slave to sin and I couldn't set myself free no matter how much I tried. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his love wherewith he loved me, broke the power of sin in my life and forgave me through the blood of the cross and set me free. Because of that, I'm on a different path. And this God who loved me and redeemed me for my own good tells me, here's how you live in this world for my honor and glory, and it's for your best. And so son, daughter, why would we not want to obey him and keep him first and love him? That's talking of God much. 
our tendency, again, is to outsource that responsibility. That's the job for the church, the Sunday school teacher, the Christian school. It's the job for truth trackers. It's the job for vacation Bible school. Dad, that's your job. I challenge you. I plead with you. Don't be passive. Take the challenge. Not a one of us wants to sit in here years from now with a broken heart because our children have left the faith. Would you rise to the challenge and say, maybe even today, sit with your family and say, you know what? God has spoken to me. He has shown me that I have not done this. But by God's grace from today, I want to keep him first. And I want to love him most. And we're going to talk about God much. That you would walk in the faith and you would take away from this home the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Men, would you rise to that challenge? I encourage you. I implore you. Let's pray. Father, you know our weakness. You know there's not a man in here who is perfect in this. We all fail. The Lord, obedience says that we would embrace our failure, we would accept it and acknowledge it, and that we would turn turn to you in our humility to find grace and mercy.